The Rundown with Carrie Saldo on 88.5 NEPM is made possible with support from Armbrook Village. Good morning. This is The Rundown with Carrie Saldo. I am Carrie Saldo. Hey, thanks for joining us for our very first show, the Groundhog Day edition. In the year that I learned, Massachusetts has its very own groundhog. And uh, now I'll bring you the people who are going to help you do some learning about the week's news in Western Massachusetts, our panel. Joining me here in the studio in NEPM Studios in Springfield is NEPM's Managing Editor of News, Elizabeth Roman. Good morning. And Dusty Christensen, who wears a lot of journalism hats. (laughs) Among them, Investigative Editor at the digital news outlet, The Shoestring. And uh, Kevin Moran from the Berkshire Eagle, the Executive Editor, will be joining us on the phone at some point this morning. All right, folks, so happy to have you here. Let's run it down. Liz, we'll start with a story out of the NEPM newsroom by Nancy Eve Cohen. Some Western Mass Museums pull objects from display after new federal rules require tribal consent. New federal regulations went into effect this month that require museums to get consent from native tribes before displaying objects that are culturally important. The rules also require tribal consent before museums allow access to the items or conduct research. So Liz, several museums have stopped exhibiting some items. What what do we know? So Mount Holyoke uh, College Museum has stopped exhibiting some items. They decided to leave the displays empty and put a note uh, explaining the new regulations. They felt that that would be a learning opportunity for people coming Coming into the museum to sort of understand why they were pulled and you know the work that they will be doing in the future if they want to display items. Springfield Museums has pulled everything from their native hall. Uh, they are also going to be working with some um, with some native tribes to try and create a, an exhibit that's respectful. Uh, the key here is free, prior, and informed consent. So those uh, that's the key yes. language that really is making a difference around this issue, right? Yeah. And Stockbridge Muncie, the community band of Mohicans uh, Indians, Nancy has. A, done some work with them and they're really thrilled with the regulations particularly there's a five-year deadline people you know museums all over have to have this done in the next five years most of them are doing it pretty quickly though Uh, and also they they just feel that it's going to give an opportunity for many of them just don't want the displays out they want to be able to return those items to their ancestors they want to rebury them that should be the right right Shannon O'Loughlin the CEO and attorney for the Association on American Indian Affairs did tell NEPM quote no longer will institutions be able to do research on ancestors and other things without first this language that we were talking about right without first consulting and obtaining the free prior and informed consent of native nations that are affiliated with those ancestors and cultural items dusty your thoughts on this i just think this is so long overdue i mean um Native Americans have been calling for years for this to happen. There have been horrible practices that have gone on for for many, many years in the past of uh, stealing these items from communities and displaying them in a way that is is maybe offensive or at the very least uh, without asking consent of those very same peoples. So uh, for this to be happening, I think, is a really long time coming. People have been pushing it for it for a really long time. So when you see those empty uh, exhibits maybe at your local museum, understand the bigger history behind it. Absolutely. And I do believe that we have Kevin Moran, the Berkshire Eagles executive editor on the line with us. Kevin, you there? 
Yeah, good morning. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Thanks so much for being here. I don't know if you heard caught what we were talking about, but we were talking about the fact that some Western Mass museums have taken objects from display after the new federal rules that went into effect. And obviously, Berkshire County, home to many museums. Any word yet from some of the museums or cultural institutions in Berkshire County about how they're handling this issue? Well, the fact is there are. Uh, specifically, I can't name them right, right off the top of my head, but they absolutely are, and they're being very responsive. Uh, and some of the museums, uh, you know, I believe including Berkshire Museum, are being culturally sensitive. According, Of course, they, you know, that's just, uh, that's just what needs to be done. It's the right thing going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Kevin, I, I want to turn back to you. Some reporting from Heather Bellow from the Berkshire Eagle Two months ago, police searched an eighth grade classroom after receiving a complaint about a potentially pornographic book. In some ways, the complaint was about uh, Maya Kobe's graphic memoir, Gender Queer. And that really, the, flagging that book, has plopped this small school in a small town into the midst of a national debate. Where are we now on this issue, Kevin? Well, absolutely. Uh, on December 8th, uh, someone complained to Great Barrington Police uh, about a book uh, called Gender Gender Queer in a Great Barrington Middle School classroom. Um, Police soon thereafter ended up going into the classroom. A uh, plainclothes police officer did that, uh, wearing a body cam, and uh, went went into the classroom with the school principal alongside, and uh, that, uh, that police officer then began to question the teacher in charge of that classroom. Uh, uh, and this was with the was and this was with the permission of the school superintendent as well, though, right? Yeah, absolutely. And and really, uh, you know, boy, this is such a such a big, complicated issue. Absolutely. But this particular book is one of the is one of the is one of the books that is that uh, is often the number one book that is sought to be banned by certain groups and individuals uh, concerned about um, the 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 material therein. And um, right now, what they're trying to do is the town is actually preparing for a lot of uh, it's preparing its own investigation to figure out who exactly what exactly is going on here. They they still don't know who complained about the book. Well, the police do. Right. But they just haven't been haven't made that name public. Correct. Yes. Uh, thank you for clarifying that. They the police do know, but they're not releasing that person's name publicly. Um, but this anonymous tip really touched off a firestorm of all kinds of issues. What's appropriate to be taught in classrooms? What is free speech? What is the freedom to read? And lots of people are talking about this issue. It's, it's an issue here in Berkshire County that is, that, is, uh, that is being heard and debated across the nation because we happen to be at an, at an inflection point when it comes to book banning in the United States. Well, and it's also an issue of LGBTQIA rights because we're flagging this book that talks about way kids are coming of age who are exploring their sexuality and trying to find their way in the world are doing so. And this is one very valid way that this the book explores these ideas and these concepts. And it's made a bunch of, frankly, probably heterosexual parents pretty uncomfortable. Dusty, I see you nodding your head. <laughs> That's right. I think this book has been a flashpoint across the country for exactly that reason. Um, 
And it's just important to keep the context here that it is often books that represent, uh, that have representations of LGBTQIA plus folks in them or people of color in them that are the subject of, of attempts to censor them. I know the Berkshire Eagle uh, ran an amazing piece uh, from a local historian, Joe Derwin, who went back into the history of Berkshire County into previous attempts to, to censor uh, uh, books and, and, and movies. And unsurprisingly, it was everything uh, from 1968, uh, the district attorney attempting to cancel a showing of The Woman, uh, a movie, because it uh, depicted lesbian acts, according to him. Uh, or even further back from that, the the police chief uh, attempting to get the, the book Strange Fruit uh, banned because uh, I believe it showed uh, interracial uh, relationship within it. So I think it's always important to remember that it is it is vulnerable groups that are depicted in these books that so often are the subject of attempts to, to censor them. Yeah, and I, and I should say, going back to both the, the police chief and the superintendent's conduct around this, Kevin, your paper has reported that they both have apologized multiple times, the superintendent for not insisting on a search warrant and the police chief for creating, quote, distrust and alarm. Liz, your thoughts on what you heard when the police were called in to deal with an issue around a book, which is something that's typically adjudicated within the school process, within the school system. I mean, it was pretty it was pretty jarring, right? There was no criminal activity involved. And I think, you know, Nancy Cohen in our newsroom has done some reporting on this as well. She spoke with Superintendent Peter Dillon, and he says, in hindsight, he absolutely would have asked for a warrant. He didn't think at the time the, the effect that it would have on the public to, to see that they were questioning the way that librarians and the school teachers are choosing the books that are, are given to their students. I mean, they, you, these are professionals that do their job. He trusts them, and he knows that by allowing that police officer in, he showed a level of distrust that then the parents were, were beginning to question. Yeah. Kevin, what are what are you hearing there in the Berkshires from, from parents who might be on either side of this issue, who see this as an act of censorship or see it as an act of, you know, hey, I don't feel like my kid is ready as a 12 to an 18 year old, even though the American Library Association says this is a highly appropriate book for that age group. Uh, folks who say, you know, I don't want my kids seeing this kind of a book. Sure. There are parents, uh, We've heard from parents on both sides who have uh, sort of a, you know, a real broad spectrum of opinions, um, parents, you know, and community members, quite frankly. It's, it's, not, just, it's not just a parental uh, uh, point of discussion Absolutely. whatsoever. Thank you for it's that a community yeah. discussion. And, uh, you know, we've, we've gotten some letter writers, for example, who've, who were absolutely fine <coughs> that the, the police went into the classroom and started asking questions. Uh, but we've, quite frankly, the majority of the letters we've received and a lot of the pub, most of the public outcry, especially at the meetings, has been one of concern because this is this is you know this is the censorship. Uh, this is censorship that would be that would be that is you know underway here. It's a government is what censors, um, and so when this starts, uh, you know when we have evidence of this here, people are upset and really concerned about that here in the Berkshires, as they are throughout would be throughout Western Massachusetts. Liz, this is a the issue of censorship and, and looking at books is an issue that came up in Ludlow as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in June, the Ludlow Public Schools was considering a change to its library policy. Uh, and as I understand it, a change that would have removed dozens of books from district libraries and changed how future books are selected. But instead, they left their current policy in place. Why? They did. So Jill Kaufman in our newsroom did some amazing coverage on this. She attended these meetings. There was a lot of debate between the parents. Uh, but the school committee, there was no debate. It was one member. He brought this policy forward. He had followed a policy that was done in Pennsylvania, and that policy is being questioned by the ACLU for, you know, 
breaking the Constitution, essentially. So uh, they, they really weren't weren't buying it. The school chair committee chairman basically said, listen, we have a policy in place. Only four books in the past couple of years have been challenged. If parents are this concerned, use the policy that we have. If there's a problem with that policy, we'll be able to see that based on your usage. But if people aren't using it as is, we're not going to bring in an entirely new policy. Absolutely more to come on all of this. It's a fascinating, very layered, very detailed issue. I'm going to move us along, though, and talk about quickly here a piece out of Mass Live by John Mysek. Uh, two Western Massachusetts airports are among those that scored funding under a federal infrastructure law to make safety and operational improvements to two uh, airports in our region, Westfield Barnes Regional and Pittsfield Municipal. Hey, Kevin, there in Pittsfield, you know, I was thinking back to 2016 when I was at the Eagle. We did a piece talking to former Mayor Linda Tyre. She was looking at the airport land as a place maybe Maybe we would grow some marijuana. Uh, I don't think that ever happened. But is there other activity happening there? Even though there's no commercial passenger service at that airport in Pittsfield, it can be a pretty busy place, right? It is. It is. We've seen over the years, uh, especially with some recent airport, I should say recent, within the past 10 years, some airport expansion, runway expansion work that's been done at the Pittsfield Municipal Air, uh, Airport that's really opened up uh, the ability of larger planes especially to come and land here in the Berkshires, uh, and that's really had a profound impact. And, uh, you know, certainly you're seeing lots of more commercial activity, but you're seeing a lot of people here who are bringing in their private planes uh, be- because they absolutely can. And there's a bustle of activity that is taking place at the airport now. And, uh, you know, we've over the years have, have paid visits to the airport here and really discovered that it's a, a really uh, – dynamic uh, airport that that has a profound impact in terms of its overall economic benefit to the area. And with this extra money here, that's only going to help. But I do also remember whether it's Pittsfield or North Adams, sometimes when I've reported on these airports, there's always a lot of tension in the community because it's it's city funds, it's state funds, it's federal funds used going toward this space that maybe not everybody is using. And while it can be an economic driver, there's also that tension there because maybe it's a little uh, it's in, uh, inequitable in certain certain extents. Uh, Liz, Westfield Barnes also got money. What's what's going up there? What's going on there? I mean, generally, Barnes is pretty well appreciated by the community there. And on top of getting money for, you know, these infrastructure changes, they also have some F-35 jets coming in in 2026. Adam Frenier, a reporter in our newsroom. I always got to shout out our reporters. They do an amazing Absolutely. job. Absolutely. Uh, he did some coverage on, on this. And basically, they're going to get an additional $60 million for a new taxiway, for a, a new gate. Um, so there's a lot of money coming in, a thousand jobs that are going to be, you know, saved because they have to do all of this work. And there's also civilian jobs there as well and some restaurants in there. So there's, there's a lot going on. And uh, I think this will only be a benefit to them. Well, let's take a quick break here. Still more to come. We'll explore the reasons why advocates are bugging the state to be better about pesticide use with Dusty and uh, scoops and predictions from our panel here. You're listening to The Rundown with me, Kara Seldo, on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to The Rundown with Carrie Saldo. I am Carrie Saldo, digging into the week's news here from Western Mass with Elizabeth Roman, Kevin Moran, and Dusty Christensen. Dusty, let's come right to you. Advocates are bugging the state to be better about reducing pesticide use, a move that was promised in state law somewhere around 20 years ago, according to your reporting. This was your scoop in the shoestring. That law was meant to reduce pesticide use and attract the process, but 
Is that really happening? It seems questionable as to whether that's happening or not. <clears throat> a group out here with strong ties out here uh, to Western Mass called Regeneration Massachusetts had raised the alarm uh, in our reporting that um, that the state's uh, Department of Agricultural Resources, or MDAR for short, um, was not abiding by a 2000 a law passed in 2000 known as an act to protect the health of our children and families from harmful pesticides that, uh, among other things, required MDAR to submit annual reports on pesticide reduction to the state legislature and uh, a committee in particular within the legislature. Mm -hmm. They had filed public records report for uh, records requests for these reports, had never gotten them. We reached out to the state agency, and it seems as though after we reached out as a news outlet, they finally published this annual report on pesticide the reduction. reports materialized. <laughs> to, to be fair to the agency, they did say they were including that information in other annual reports, but uh, the law is pretty clear that they need to be putting out a pesticide reduction report every year. Some of those folks were also concerned about what was inside that report, not just the fact that it was missing. Uh, there were 736 new, uh, new pesticide products registered with the uh, pesticide board uh, that's part of the agency uh, just during fiscal year 2022. At a time 10. when you're finding we're supposed to to be reducing pesticide use and, and you know, uh, you can sort of suss out from that the number of pesticides that just exist in general, right? That's right. You know, a lot of pesticides, as folks uh, probably know, can can do everything from cause cancer to affect the nervous system, irritate the skin, eyes, cause harm to a person's hormone or endocrine system. So this is a big deal for human health. And as climate change uh, makes our planet warmer, we are bringing uh, invasive species, uh, you know, more and more to our region. And uh, so some folks, including including uh, these activists we spoke to, are worried that that's only going to increase the desire to use pesticides. So it's something that we are definitely going to be keeping our eyes on at the shoestring where we broke the story um, and, and looking into what sorts of bills lawmakers are seeking to pass. There's a couple that have about a week to make it out of committee in the state legislature. We'll definitely be talking with you about that more. So Liz, Springfield Superintendent of Schools Daniel Warwick this week announced his retirement. That was after more than 10 years in that post and mm -hmm. 48 years with yeah. Springfield public schools. Warwick oversees the largest public school district here in Western Massachusetts. The number 23,000 students and 3,500 employees. What stands out to you about his time at the helm of Springfield Public Schools. Oh, he really brought some stability to to the area because the person that had the the spot before him, Alan Ingram, he he was not he's a very controversial superintendent. He was not a local. Um, Warwick has been here his entire career. They felt that he didn't know the area, um, Ingram, and he there was ten schools that were made into level four underperforming. The graduation rates were tanking, and he came in and he just stabilized things. I think people trusted him. They knew him. He's been around since he was a substitute teacher, forty eight years in the district, very well liked. A lot of street cred there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he, he lives here, he knows the kids, he knows the families, and so I think people appreciated that. He brought the graduation rate up, not he, his team, uh, up to 84%. They were in the 50s when he, when he started. Um, you know, truancy has been reduced, and they've also had uh, increases in MCAS. Some of schools have come out of underperforming levels, and also he took on these massive uh, building projects, including the Lincoln and Brightwood Hybrid School, which was like the first model in the country, not in the country, I think in the state, that had been done that way. So they took two elementary schools that were from like the 1800s, merged them together to create this beautiful building in a neighborhood, the north end of Springfield, that's, you know, that struggles with poverty. And it's been a real pride for them. Hmm. Interesting. He says he's, you know, retiring at the end of this school year. And I think all of us will be watching what happens because the assistant, the assistant superintendent role, which you reported this story out, Liz, back in 2022, Lydia Martinez-Alvarez, she retired. Yes. 
we couldn't find any uh, no, anything online that says, you know, they've filled that assistant superintendent role. And typically in this school setting, it's very common for maybe an assistant superintendent to bump up as an interim for that superintendent position. So it'll be interesting if, in fact, these two two are vacant at the end of the year. Yeah, there wasn't any, you know, formal announcement. Maybe there is someone fulfilling that role with a different title or they've, you know, merged a couple of positions to do that. Um, Adam Frenier did go to the announcement for uh, Warwick's retirement. He did speak with Sarno, at, who heads the school committee, of course. That's the mayor of Springfield. Yes, that's the mayor of Springfield. Sorry, I assume everyone knows. Um, it's, it's my city, you know, so I'm proud. Uh, anyway, so he spoke with him and he said, basically, the school committee is going to be doing a subcommittee. They're going to do a national search. So that's that's where we're at right now. Staying with schools, Kevin, we'll bring you in here. Uh, out of I Berkshire's, Tammy Daniels reported that uh, nor- the northern Berkshire town of Clarksburg, their town officials are asking the school superintendency union to consider regionalization as a way to reduce educational costs. And, you know, there the, there's a tentative agreement to explore maybe advantages and disadvantages of doing so. There was a huge regionalization push in the southern Berkshires that failed this past fall, Kevin. Uh, your paper's editorial board had come out in favor of that. That regionalization, quoting here, we considered it the best path forward for neighboring school communities dealing with declining enrollment and other systemic struggles disproportionately weighing on rural school districts. Is still that mindset, Kevin? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is something that is a real struggle for uh you know, regionalized, existing regionalized school districts uh, here in the Berkshires. We're seeing, obviously, you know, money's harder to come by. We're seeing a decline in student enrollment. And we're seeing uh, not only in South, uh, not only in North, but also in Central County, some, uh, some real hard looks at not only regionalizing schools, in other words, you know, clustering them together and, and trying to, trying to uh, come to some kind of uh, benefit, cost benefit, associated with that, but also uh, some looks at uh, a lot of physical plants, school buildings. Uh, there's, you know, there's a lot of old buildings here, and with some regional efforts, a lot of these proposals are, are coming with the idea of, hey, if we bring these two school districts together, we could probably get a new school out of this, too. So it's, uh, it, it's real. It's hard. It is the, the, the passions on, on doing anything in school <laughs> um, are, are, you know, it's very impassioned. And, um, and it's, it's a, these are really tough, soul-searching debates that are going on here throughout Berkshire County with regard to our local schools. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's always a push-pull between the folks who still have their kids in public school settings and their tax money. They feel like it's going to work for them, right? They can send put their kid on the bus and send them to school every day, and they're they're educated and they're taking care of, for, care of that time. And then there's folks who maybe their kids already went through the school system or they don't have children, so they'd like to see maybe some of those tax dollars going elsewhere in their community's funding, maybe bridges or roads or you name it, who knows? Uh, and we have seen regionalization at work uh, elsewhere here in Western Massachusetts. You know, Hampshire Regional has four elementary schools that are serving Chesterfield, Goshen, Southampton, West Hampton, Williamsburg. Um, but, but Clarksburg's had a little trouble with its its elementary school. At one point, it was looking at this unconventional proposal where it would hop over the border in my hometown of Stamford, Vermont, and maybe they would bridge those schools there. But that didn't end up going anywhere. Right, Kevin? It, it didn't, but it was one of the more unusual proposals when it comes to talk of regionalization because there would have been a cross-state uh, partnership there. Uh, Clarksburg and, and, and Stanford did discuss the possibility of, of unifying, and that would have put a, a very different Vermont 
education system in contact with a very different Massachusetts system. It, it actually makes some sense in some ways, too, <laughs> but it was just a bridge too far, quite honestly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'm not sure there's any eloquent way for me to pivot here, so let's just now move ahead and, and talk about snow. <laughs> if someone comes up with an eloquent way, toss it my way. Uh, the Springfield, city of Springfield had some trouble handling the big storm on January 7th. We were all sort of bemoaning the fact that we didn't have snow, and then all of a sudden we had too dang much of it. Reporting out of the Republican newspaper by Jeanette DeForge, uh, she wins the award for my favorite news lead of the week. <laughs> Plowing this year is a numbers game, and this year the odds aren't working in the city's favor. Not even close. <laughs> awesome, Jeanette. Uh, so the city's DPW director, Chris Signoli, told the Republican that the city needs 150 plows running across the nearly 450 miles of city streets here in Springfield. 100, 100, so we're 50 short there, plow drivers opted in, and then just 88 showed up for that big January 7th snowstorm. Liz, what does the city do here? Just sort of like cross their fingers and pray that more people show up? I, it's, I, I've lived this in the city my entire life. I believe since I've been reporting, it's the first time that uh, Mayor Sarno has issued an apology to the public about how badly this was handled. Uh, and I, I live in the city. I live in an area that has a very prominent road, and that was not cleaned well at all. The side streets were a mess. It was just a, it was a tough time getting around anywhere. Uh, so he, you know, he apologized. He said he would talk to DPW Director Chris Ignoli, and they would try and come up with some options. Chris has said it's very difficult because of the pay rate. You know, some people don't want to come into the city and do it. I believe there's a, there might be a residency requirement as well. So that keeps people from coming. And we've actually been reporting on this since last year because a lot of people who bought plow equipment and were ready to go saw no snow. So it wasn't so it's my, a huge yeah, investment. It's a exactly. gamble. And it's not worth it if you're not going to be able to do a couple snowstorms in the year. So I think that kept people away as well. Well, and the city is trying here, right? They've raised rates. They've offered bonuses. Um, and it's very interesting, uh, Kevin Moran, because when I way back when I reported on Williamstown, Peter Follin, the original town manager who I worked, uh, who I reported on in Springfield, used to hammer it home that snow and ice removal budget is the only place that a city or town can deficit spend. Springfield doesn't even have the opportunity to spend the money at this point, though. Uh, any cities and towns there in the Berkshires grappling with this issue, Kevin? Well, it's not only just with snowplows, but it's with school bus drivers and and in uh, other you know public uh, public needs there associated with that thing with that as well. But yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, this year has been such a crazy year, and you know, it's really as as our favorite um, mayor uh, John Barrett used to say, it's never the North Adams long of, time, of, of long soft. time North Adams mayor. Absolutely, it's never the 18 inches of dry uh, powder. It's always it's always those storms that, and we've been seeing a lot of them this winter that when we do get snow, you know, it's right on the cusp. You're seeing, you know, uh, a wintry mix. And that is really where all of a sudden your money goes right on the road uh, to do to with salt and sand and plows and, and, and everything like that. But uh, you really but, hit the hit the nail on the head there, Kevin, with the point about the jobs There's just so many open, vacant positions. It's really a workforce development crisis, right? I would say so too. I mean, and and you know, I, I we're we're coming out of you know still coming out of a pandemic. Um, you know, interesting though. The the I saw the nation's job report uh, this morning came out, and it looks like uh, job hires are way up compared to what they were expecting. Um, but obviously, we could use some we could use some snowplower snowplow drivers in that mix too. 
Yeah. Well, we've come to the portion of the show where I'm going to ask you to divulge your closely kept secrets. Journalists, we like to keep it close to the vest, but you guys, I want you to spill it here this morning. Let's look. uh, I'll let Chris Matthews. He used to talk all the time about scoops and predictions. We're going to do predictions and scoops here on the rundown. Uh, Dusty, why don't I start with you? Prediction, scoop, what do you got? Uh, Transitioning from weather-related topics, I think that my prediction is that, unfortunately, we're going to see a lot more stories, maybe not the happiest of stories, related to climate change in this coming year. Uh, We reported the shoestring that uh, this past year was one of the warmest and wettest on record for many locations across Massachusetts. Obviously, we all witnessed the devastating floods in the the Connecticut River Valley this past year, and I just think we're going to see more conversations about municipal infrastructure, about flooding, or the other impacts to farmers, to uh, people living in our local communities uh, that climate change is having right now in our communities. Hmm. Liz, how about for you? What are you you watching? What's coming across your desk here as managing editor of NEPM News? Yeah, so uh, Karen Brown is actually, uh, from our newsroom, is actually uh, talking to the Northwestern District Attorney's Office about a new task force for animal cruelty. Um, And really what she's focusing on is the fact that they're, they're saying there's just not enough resources. So Hampshire and Franklin County share one animal shelter. Their animal control officers are really limited. And a lot of this, she was actually, we were talking a little bit this morning, and she said a lot of animal cruelty cases are tied with domestic violence cases as well. So it's a it's a, a much broader issue. She's going to be doing some reporting on that, and that'll be running soon. So Absolutely be uh, looking out for that one. Kevin, for you, managing editor of the Berkshire Eagle, what are your reporters working on, or what do you, uh, any predictions you want to lay on us this morning? Well, you know, I, I'm I, I just want to make mine very simple. My prediction is that the rundown on NAPM is going to have a very successful run. <laughs> and, I, and I congratulate you all, and I wish you all the best uh, uh. as you as you go forward with the program. I, I really mean that. It's we, we need this kind of discussion in Western Massachusetts, and, and more news uh, is better. Uh, and so good luck to you. Kevin Moran, you are a gentleman and a scholar, as always. I appreciate your well wishes and just your support as I've uh, developed my career as a journalist through the years. I owe a, a big, huge debt to you, my friend. And a hearty thank you for everybody, to everybody for playing. Uh, NEPM's Managing Editor for News, Elizabeth Roman, Dusty Christensen, the Shoestrings Investigative Editor, and Kevin Moran of the Berkshire Eagle. You've been listening to The Rundown on 88.5 NEPM. Hey, welcome back to The Rundown with Carrie Saldo. That's me. I'm Carrie Saldo, your host, as you likely guessed. Up next, my discussion with Dr. Charmaine Nelson, a prominent scholar, educator, author, and most relevant to our chat today, the founding director of the Slavery North Initiative at UMass Amherst. The initiative recently landed a $2.65 million grant from the Mellon Foundation. More on that grant in a bit, but first... Nelson filled me in on why we don't hear much about slavery in the northern United States and Canada. Because slavery was practiced but abolished sooner in those regions, then there was an effort made earlier, meaning from the 19th century, to try to rewrite those histories and bury those histories of slaving. So then now what you find as a scholar, Carrie, is fascinating. When you go to like a provincial archive in Canada and look for the documentation on enslavers and their surrogates and enslaved people it's there it's on the microfilm reels it's in the you know paper documents it's there so there was no hiding of that information in the period of slavery enslavers were not embarrassed to own other human beings they documented enslaved people because they were property and you document your property right you know how many horses you own you know how much land you own you know if you have a house you know how many enslaved people you own It was just in the open. 
The problem is now on the ground, there's so few scholars and students doing the research on these forgotten regions that it's much slower in terms of the generation of new research on these regions. And then also where my, our own, and I am pointing to myself here, white people, people with a history of slave owning, which I haven't done the research in my own family to know if our roots do in fact connect to something like that. But just speaking broadly, where does shame and fear and uh, guilt around that history also play into that erasure that you're talking about? Oh, absolutely. I, I always say, and I know this makes people uncomfortable, but if we go back multiple generations, how soon do you start to hit, especially as a white American or Canadian who were, was raised and had the multi-generational roots in these nations, how soon do you start to hit people who were either directly or indirectly profiting from slavery? Right. So that could be the printer of the newspaper who's running the slave ads, right, who might not himself or herself own an enslaved person. But they're like, come one, come all. If you're hunting someone, I will put it in my newspaper because I want that money. Right. And who's the person on the street, let's say in the tavern, who's reading the Halifax Gazette, who says, oh, I can get ten dollars for turning in that enslaved person that I saw running. Right. Right. So. You might not be an enslaver, you might not own anybody, but again, you're like, money is money and I will do what it takes to, you know, enrich myself, the end. And then never mind all the people, listen, in places like Boston, Halifax, Quebec City, there were especially white men who made a lot of money uh, calling themselves what? West Indian merchants, meaning they were trading in slave produced crops and goods coming from the Caribbean. So places like Jamaica, Barbados, Haiti, et cetera. So coffee, sugar, rum. They knew where it was coming from. They knew who was uh, was uh, producing it. And they also knew under what conditions it was being produced. They sold it anyway. And many of those white men also shipped up into uh, the northern uh, parts of North America, enslaved people as a so-called secondary cargo on those ships. So the primary cargo was the rum, sugar, molasses, coffee. The secondary cargo was 5, 10, 15 enslaved people, right? So the slave ship coming from Africa, let's say to Jamaica, the primary cargo was 300 enslaved people, 500 enslaved people. But there's a whole other part of the so-called triangular trade between the Caribbean and the American uh, Northeast and Canada that was the, principally based on the shipping of the goods and secondarily on the shipping of enslaved human beings. I'm speaking with Dr. Charmaine Nelson founding director of the Slavery North Initiative at UMass Amherst. I do want to focus a little bit uh, on the initiative here for a minute. And you've recently received in January a very prestigious grant from the Mellon Foundation, $2.65 million to be used to, to bolster the work that's happening at the initiative. And it's really multifaceted, the work that you're doing. There's a very long list. So I'm only focusing on uh, a few narrow slices here today. It says um, in your in your literature that you're working to bolster the public understanding of the social and cultural impacts of transatlantic slavery, including how that history manifests in anti-Black racism today. And I was thinking about perhaps one of the ways it's it's difficult to get at the truth of that, that racism that exists today because of what we've been taught, the whitewashed version of the history of slavery that we've been taught. Do you think that that's one of the reasons that we're 
unable or unwilling sometimes to see the racism that exists today? Oh, thank you for that question. So here's is a multi-part answer to this. So even when you speak like me with a Canadian, Canadian accent, I will be asked constantly by my fellow white Canadians, where am I from? And what they're after is not for me to say Toronto or Halifax or Vancouver. They want me to name a country outside of Canada that they deem to be a black country. Mm-hmm. This is because again of the, the sheer ignorance about the long centuries long presence of black people in the country. Then part two of this is where do most people get their slavery knowledge from? So as you mentioned, you know, you and myself and many, many other people, if they know anything, they've probably seen a film and the film was probably on the tropics. So they've seen 12 years of slave or they've seen Django Unchained and they learned a little bit about plantation slavery and they think, oh, that's it, right? Because those films almost never talk about uh, slavery also occurring in the North. So that's part of the issue too. So if you're of the mindset where you're ignorant, and I don't mean this as, as a, um, you know, an insult, but if you're ignorant to the history of slavery and ignorant to the history of slavery in these regions, you also don't understand that anti-Black racism today, the, um, what we in the Black community call driving while Black, shopping while Black, walking while Black, right? Having a baby while Black, right? We have a Black maternal health crisis in this country, in Canada, in the UK, where Black women die at a much higher rate, Black babies die at a much higher rate. Where does this come from? It's not a 21st century problem. It's a slavery problem that was never cleaned up. And what I mean by that is, for instance, during the period of slavery, enslaved people were deemed to be chattel under the law. They were considered movable personal property, like a chair, like a desk. So enslavers also developed theories about Black people being brutish, meaning closer to animals. They applied this to Black maternity. There were theories and ideas for very prevalent that Black women, for instance, gave birth more quickly and more easily with less pain, right? So they weren't offered the same medical care and attention during childbirth. They weren't allowed to lie in after childbirth in the same way that an upper-class white woman would have been. So the other thing, too, is we're not believed, right? We're not seen as um, objective observers of our own reality. And that also goes back to slavery, right? This idea that you cannot trust the intellectual capacity and the truthfulness, the morality of that Black population. So this is what I mean when if you don't understand slavery, you don't understand where anti-Black racism today is coming from, and you don't understand that it's a problem of never having cleaned up, redressed, and reconciled this. So I think that I'll have us focus on um, one other aspect of Slavery North. And um, in addition to its academic initiative, there's also a social justice mission. And in part, it says, quote, to be a conduit through which to confront and heal these traumatic histories. And those two words really stood out to me, confront and heal, right? Mm -hmm. And I was thinking about the idea of confronting as, as a white person, you know, what would you challenge me to confront? Right. I think the huge part for white listeners in America and in Canada, the same issue in both of our nations, is that slavery is not a Black history. Who were the enslavers? Who were the overseers? Who were the slave hunters? Who were the sheriffs who were policing enslaved people who ran away and got thrown in jail? Who were the printers? They're all white people. So how this is the magic act here the bait and switch of like how this all gets pulled off is that 
we pretend that Transatlantic Slavery was a Black history. Let's just throw it into Black History Month, give it 29 or 28 days, and then let's not talk about it anymore. These are embedded too in uh, white family histories, white public histories, political, social, geographical histories. White people need to take ownership, again, of their direct and indirect participation and the way that, in the same way we just, Carrie, had that conversation about the knock-on effects of anti-Black racism, the flip side of that are the knock-on effects of white privilege that you've inherited that white women can have sa safely have babies in, in Canada and the USA and not have to worry that they're going to die delivering in the same way that a Black mother is. And this is clearly not a class issue, the Black maternal health crisis, because the data coming out of the USA tells us the poorest white mothers, the, the ones who have not, let's say, been to college or university, white mothers, have better survival rates and their babies have better survival rates than college and university educated black mothers. This is not about class, it's about race and racism. So white people need to be honest about these histories, that they are their histories. And that's why the word confront has to be a part of this, right? Because what happens then is a lot of us as black people of the diaspora, meaning our ancestors were enslaved, right? We are having a different experience of the world than our white fellow citizens. And part of the problem is that in many cases, we are talking past each other because when I speak my reality, for instance, of the ongoing experience of anti-Black racism, as we've just had that conversation, my white colleagues or friends or associates look at me like I'm crazy. Hmm. Like they don't understand what I'm talking about, or I must be exaggerating, or I must be, again, not an objective um, observer of my own reality. It's frustrating. I'm so sorry that that was your, that is your experience because to me, this is a white person problem, right? Like this is not, oh, Charmaine, your, your reality is not what it is. Like white people get comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Like right. this is the reality that we share together and need to work on together. Right, right. And speaking to that heal part of, of the quote we discussed, you know, when I hear the word heal, I think kind of most immediately about the families of the people of color who were brutalized, who have lineage that's through to today that can point to that very direct and horrific connection that they have to slavery. So I, I recognize that, that healing is such a complex process. How do you talk to people about perhaps beginning that, that healing process? That is such a great question, Carrie. I think part of it for me is, listen, I, I encounter the Black audiences who express to me that they're ashamed to speak about their enslaved ancestry. And I'm always very angered by them. I'm very angry at them because I say, listen, if we go back the multi-generations to the period where you start to hit as a uh, Black person in diaspora, your enslaved ancestors who were on the slave ships. We have to realize every time a ship set sail from the West Coast of Africa to the Americas, there was a fraction, there was an economic calculation of, oh, we know that eight, six, four percent of the cargo, meaning our ancestors will die and be disposed of in the sea or be murdered by the crew, right? So if my ancestors don't get off the ship, I'm not here. So their struggle to survive is what makes me possible, what allows me to sit here and have the privilege of trying to recuperate their stories. How dare you be ashamed of that history? Black people are brilliant, resistive, resilient, and like all honor to our enslaved ancestors for just surviving 
the horror show, right? The brutality, the systemic brutality that was slavery. You know, so for me, the healing as someone, like both my parents were born in Jamaica. So absolutely, I have enslaved ancestry because Jamaica was all about the British exploiting sugar cultivation, for instance, predominantly. I am not here if my ancestors didn't survive the, spe the specific horror of plantation slavery in Jamaica. So for me, part of my healing is honoring my enslaved ancestors by doing this work. And I can never speak for them. I don't want to, but I want to try to recuperate to the best of my ability in my own research too, as a scholar of transatlantic slavery studies, their stories, their processes, their resistance, their experiences. That was Dr. Charmaine Nelson, Director of the Slavery North Initiative at UMass Amherst. Thanks for your time. Next week on The Rundown, our exploration of Black history and Western Mass continues with a look at abolitionist David Ruggles' work in Northampton. And of course, we will run down the biggest news stories of the week from Western Mass. Time for some credits. The Rundown theme is courtesy of The Love Crumbs. Our director is Tony Dunn. Our board op is Phil Bishop. Betsy Langto provided production support. And our engineers are Kara Foster, Bart Rankin, and Chuck Dubay. I'm Carrie Saldo, and this is The Rundown. This was the rundown. Uh, either way, I'll catch you next week. <laughs>